verses 1 through 7. I invite you to open your Bible or one of the few Bibles for the reading of God's Word. And let us ask the Lord, by the power of His Spirit, to illumine our minds with spiritual understanding, to open our hearts that we might receive His Word in faith. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we rejoice in the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, O Lord, we thank you for your word breathed out by your Spirit, preserved for us in Scripture, so that we might might not live in darkness, but walk in the light, the truth which is in Jesus. So grant us your grace, Lord, to hear and receive your word and to respond in true faith to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, this scripture reading from Isaiah 9, which you have already heard in the call to worship, you've already sung it in that opening hymn of praise. Uh, It is a particularly uh, familiar passage of scripture, especially during this time of year, the Advent season. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. One of the more familiar passages of the Advent Christmas season You often see it printed on Christmas cards, and if you know Handel's Messiah, you know it as one of the great movements of that great work. So we we recognize this passage as a prophecy of Jesus' birth, but what else 
does it teach us? Now, first of all, one of the most important things to remember about biblical prophecy is that reading a prophecy such as this is like looking through a telescope or through binoculars. When you look through a telescope or through binoculars, everything appears closer, right? So you're looking at something 50 yards away, it looks much nearer. Something 150 yards away looks much nearer. Something 300 yards is much more clearly visible in a way that it would not be without the magnification. But here's the interesting thing. When you look through a pair of binoculars, you see all three things. That, whatever that object is, 50 yards away, 150 yards away, 300 yards away. You look through the binoculars, you see it all at the same time, and it all seems closer, right? Okay. That's how it is with prophecy, oftentimes. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophets saw things in the future, and some of those things were very near and close to their time and would actually occur in the prophet's lifetime or shortly thereafter. Other things were to occur further down the historical timeline. For example, in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. And then still other things were much further down the timeline, often all the way down to the last day of history and the coming of God's everlasting kingdom on earth when Christ comes again with power to judge and to bring his new creation. But the prophets saw all of this in one vision and often communicated it in the same prophecy. That's what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 9. You're seeing things that are close to Isaiah's time, further away from Isaiah, and further away still. Isaiah saw events that were to occur and did occur in the relatively near future of his own day, namely the judgment that was to come and did come upon the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century and the 6th centuries B.C. Isaiah prophesied the distress and darkness and gloom of anguish which was to fall upon God's disobedient Old Testament people. This is how chapter 8 concludes. We didn't read it, but here's what it says. Chapter 8, verse 22, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That immediately precedes the passage that we read. Isaiah prophesied the distress, the darkness, the gloom of anguish, which was to fall upon God's disobedient Old Testament people under God's discipline They were thrust into thick darkness, just as Isaiah prophesied. Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, was indeed conquered by the Assyrians. And later Jerusalem, in the south, was devastated by the Babylonians. It happened in history. That prophecy 
relating to those events was fulfilled. But then chapter 9, where we began to read, begins with a promise of redemption. Redemption after the darkness and the gloom of anguish upon Judah. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, how is this prophecy of redemption fulfilled? When did the Lord make glorious? When did he reveal his glory to Galilee of the Gentiles? Well, as we're learning in our Sunday school class, Scripture interprets Scripture. And the Gospel of Matthew answers that question very specifically for us. Matthew quotes this very passage from Isaiah 9 to show us that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah. This is what Matthew says. Listen. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's Matthew interpreting Isaiah 9 and telling us that Isaiah 9 was fulfilled, at least in part, by Jesus' ministry. With me? The prophecy of salvation in Isaiah 9 began, began to have its fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. So you see, some 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, spoke the promise of the gospel. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. That's a prophecy of Jesus' ministry. The thick darkness of which Isaiah speaks is the darkness of sin upon all humanity everywhere throughout all of history as we have been hearing from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. It is that condition of humanity fallen in sin in spiritual darkness. And the only remedy is the great light of salvation which shines in and through Jesus Christ. For example, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul refers to the domain of darkness out of which believers in Christ are delivered. That's Colossians chapter 1. The Apostle Peter declares that believers in Christ have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's an echo of this passage. Who then are the people who walked in darkness? The whole human race, Jew and Gentile, 
fallen humanity, which apart from the light of Christ walks in darkness and dwells in the shadow of death. But because Christ has come, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So, though, though Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, was prophesying about what would happen in the future, Isaiah spoke in the past tense to emphasize the certainty. This is how the prophets spoke. They spoke about the future, but they used past tense verbs in order to demonstrate and to emphasize the God-ordained certainty the predestined certainty of the salvation which would come through the promised Messiah. It's as good as done because God promises it. And so speaking about the future, the prophets could speak in the past tense. Jesus himself in his ministry claimed to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Think about that for a moment, in terms of Jesus' own self-reference, referring to himself as the one about whom the prophets spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's big. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in dark... There's the language. Do you hear it? Will not... Walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not, rem- may not dwell, same word, may not dwell in darkness. Well, you see, with these words from his own lips, Jesus declared himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. What kind of a man would do that, by the way? Think about it. But he did do it and he could do it because he was and is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is that great light, the light of life which shines in the darkness of this world. He was the light then. He is the light now. He will be the light forever. If we follow him, we will have the light of Life And the imagery of the light of life speaks to us of a life with vision, purpose, security, joy, truth, righteousness, hope, and of course life, everlasting life, a light which will never be extinguished. But if we are not following Jesus, where does that leave us? It leaves us walking in darkness. You know what that feels like. You ever walked any, any distance in absolute Absolute darkness. It, it doesn't take long. There's something it triggers in our brain. It's, it's just it's terror, terrorizing to be in absolute darkness. The kind of darkness is in which you cannot see your hand right in front of your face. Have you ever had that experience? It is it's horrifying. Even though if you know you can talk yourself through it, well, I'm safe. I'm, you know, I'm in a closet in my house and nothing bad is going to happen to me. It doesn't matter. It still triggers 
It just triggers in our brain this horrifying sensation. If you, it's disorienting, a feeling fraught with danger. If you've ever been in absolute darkness for any period of time, you've had that instinctive feeling, that sense of the abyss of nothingness and what might come out of it and get me. Right? Or that you might just step off the edge of this world and fall forever in unending darkness. Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue you from that. Not not from that experience, but from the reality thereof. The reality that we know about in our brains. The reality of that infinite darkness. He came into the world to save you from falling into that. Because there is a kingdom of darkness and there is a kingdom of light and the difference is Jesus Christ. Whoever follows me said, Jesus shall not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy during his own earthly ministry and still today Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy by giving the light of life to everyone who trusts in him and follows him in accordance with his word preserved for us in Holy Scripture. He will shine his light in your darkness if you will trust him and obey him and follow him. He will not fail you. In verses 3 through 5, Isaiah uses the imagery of a great harvest which multiplies the nation and increases its joy. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. This is the prophecy of the great harvest, the ingathering of people from all over the world, people from all nations being gathered into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is being fulfilled today, now, as the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, spreads throughout the world today and people from every nation today are being brought into the kingdom of Christ through faith in Him. It will be completely fulfilled when Christ comes again and the harvest is revealed with great rejoicing. Verse 4 then uses the imagery of deliverance from and victory over a powerful enemy. The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Well, the yoke, the staff, the rod of the oppressor is broken. It sets the captives free. The enemy is defeated. The day of Midian was a day of a great military victory in Old Testament Israel's history. The people would have understood that. A great victory. Well, this imagery ultimately portrays Christ's victory over the oppressive powers of sin and death and darkness, Christ has overcome them all. The day of His resurrection so that we might be set free from the slavery of sin and the curse of death. And the prophecy is still being fulfilled now as men and women are liberated from the oppressor, delivered from the dominion of the devil through the power of Christ through His Word and Spirit, brought into the kingdom of everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. And this prophecy shall be 
perfectly fulfilled when Christ comes again and his people are finally forever delivered from all evil, sin and death and destruction and war will be no more and Christ's kingdom of peace will fill the heavens and the earth. As Isaiah says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is a vision of the peace which the Messiah will bring to all the earth. The armor, the garments of war will be used as fuel for fire, burned up as debris no longer needed for use. This is the peace and righteousness of Christ's kingdom in all its fullness when all sin is eradicated, all evil is cast out, and the nations of the earth are united in their praise of Christ the King. And then verse 6 tells us how this will come to be, the prophecy of his birth. For to us a child is born. Listen very carefully to this language. Specific words are used. To us a child is born. This is the prophecy of a human birth. A human birth child. And that, of course, was Jesus, born of Mary, fully and truly human. And yet this prophesied child would be no ordinary child because no ordinary child would be called by the names which Isaiah announces. This child born of woman This human child, born of woman, would also be a son, what? Given. A son given to us. Look at the poetic couplet. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This beautifully expresses the mystery of the incarnation, the two natures, human and divine, united in Jesus Christ. He was born a child with a sinless human nature, and he was and forever was and is the eternal Son of God of divine nature, who was given to us, given by the Father. Now think of it this way. John 3.16 is an echo of Isaiah 9.6. To us, a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The son whom God gave is the son prophesied in Isaiah 9.6. And likewise, Galatians 4.4, which we've read with the lighting of the candle, says this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of woman. Two natures united. Get the language. Paul is echoing Isaiah 9, 6. Think about it. God sent forth his son born of woman. Divine and human united in one. Right there also in Galatians 4, 4. The child who was born is the son who was given in the birth of Jesus we see this remarkable fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 6. The Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, is both the Son of God, given by God, and the descendant of David, born as a child, born of woman. And throughout his life, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 9. Jesus proved himself to be the wonderful counselor, even at the age of 12, confounding the teachers in the temple, with his wisdom. Throughout his ministry, the people were amazed at his wisdom. And still he gives wisdom and counsel to those who will seek him in faith through his word in Scripture. It is a wonderful thing that his counsel, his wonderful counsel, is spoken to us through the word of Scripture. He promises wisdom to those who look to him. He promises to guide those who follow him. Isaiah also names him Mighty God, or as it could be translated, Hero God, the God of power who saves. Throughout his ministry, he proved himself to be the Mighty God, speaking to the winds and the waves, giving sight to the blind, even raising the dead. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still the Mighty God, able to save to the uttermost, all who come to him in faith. By the power of his death and resurrection, he has secured an eternal salvation for all who will turn from their sins, place their faith in him, entrust their lives to him, and submit themselves to his lordship. He is the mighty God who delivers us from the dominion of the devil and guards our souls from the spiritual forces of darkness. He is given the title Everlasting Father, which in this case does not refer to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, but which is rather a Hebrew manner of expressing eternality or immortality. Everlasting Father might be translated Father of Eternity, Author of Eternity. More simply, the eternal one, as Jesus speaks of himself in the book of the Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who was from forever, the one who shall be for forever. It is a way of attributing to Jesus himself that which is attributed to God. As Moses said in Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the meaning of the title, Everlasting Father, applied to Jesus. It means that this Savior, this child born, this Son given, is the very presence of the infinite and eternal God himself, who is without beginning and who is without end, and who therefore has all authority over heaven and earth, to whom we must entrust our lives for their eternal keeping, to whom we owe all our obedience, to whom is due all our worship and praise. 
The last title given is Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace because his kingdom is a kingdom of peace, which means the Hebrew word shalom, wholeness, absolute perfection of well-being. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace because his kingdom is a kingdom in which sin has been forgiven and will ultimately be eradicated. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace because through faith in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We have peace with God through the blood of his cross. We have peace. Not only from the spiritual, in his victory over spiritual enemies of darkness against us. We have peace with God because his wrath has been turned away by the blood of the cross. And we receive that peace when we receive him, the prince of peace. As Paul says, Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the peacemaker through the prince of peace whom he gave and sent to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this peace with God which we now have through faith in Jesus Christ is peace which is eternally secure through Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. So when the prophecy says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It is speaking of the kingdom of Christ, which was inaugurated when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father. It is in effect now. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus, the human descendant of David, is the promised Messiah of the line of David, who now sits upon the throne in heaven and reigns over the world. Even now, this prophecy of his kingdom is being fulfilled. His kingdom, his government, his peace. However, as yet imperfect and incomplete in this fallen present world. Nevertheless, it will continue to spread. It will continue to increase through the preaching of the gospel And the worship of God in spirit and truth in every nation. Christ from his throne in heaven by the power of his word and spirit is building his church on earth. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He will bring his purposes to perfect completion. Now we live in the not yet. And there is open rebellion against Christ's kingship. The world is at war against him. But as 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says, He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when that glorious day comes, when Christ comes again to bring His kingdom of peace in the glory of the new creation, then His peace will fill the earth. And we live in this in-between time as the people of His kingdom. His kingdom which has come in our lives. His kingdom which is increasing in history. And His kingdom which shall come in all its fullness, glory, and power. Remember, you're looking through the binoculars and you're seeing everything at the same time. The prophecy of Isaiah 9 has been fulfilled in the life 
and ministry of Jesus. The child born of woman, the son given by the father. It has been fulfilled in the death of Jesus who has made peace by the blood of his cross. It has been fulfilled in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus who as the son of David, risen from the dead, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and rules as king. It is now being fulfilled by the ministry of Jesus Christ, the King, at the right hand of God, as He rules in the hearts of His redeemed people, as He increases His government of peace by sending forth the word of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring more and more people into His everlasting kingdom. And then finally, ultimately, this prophecy shall be completely, perfectly, absolutely fulfilled when Christ comes again to bring his kingdom to its glorious consummation. When evil shall be banished forever, when war shall be no more, when death will be destroyed, and God will dwell with man forever in peace. O come, O come, Emmanuel, even so, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we rejoice in the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself our human nature without sin and was born of woman and lived as one of us and died for us is risen from the dead for us and seated at your right hand for us and will come again in glory for us. In this we rejoice. For this we give you thanks. And because of this we ask in his name that you by the power of your spirit would so work your word in our hearts that even now we might live on earth as the citizens of heaven to the praise of your glorious grace in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. We say one of the ancient creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed, which focuses on the union of the divine and human natures in Jesus Christ. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified 
who spoke by the prophets and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Congregation may be seated. It is my joy to invite Rebecca and Josh Hudson, together with their children, Ruth Ann, Justice, and Joseph, to come forward to affirm their vows of church membership. You all would come and stand here, please. Rebecca and Josh and their three children met with the session earlier this morning and affirmed these vows of Membership. They now stand to affirm these vows and to covenant together with you as they join our church family. I commend them into your care and into your fellowship. Receive them warmly with the hospitality of Jesus Christ as they join our family. Rebecca and Josh, and as they take these vows, let me, as I always do, encourage all of the members of our congregation to renew these vows silently in your own heart. If you're visiting today and you're curious about our standards of membership, these vows express our standards of membership. It's okay, Joseph. It's okay. Rebecca and Josh, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure without hope for your salvation? except in His sovereign mercy. Do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Savior of sinners? Do you sincerely receive and depend upon Christ alone as He is offered in the gospel for your salvation? Do you? Do you promise, relying upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, that you will endeavor to live as a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you? Do you promise to serve Christ in His church by participating with this congregation in its worship of God and its ministry to others to the best of your ability. Do you? And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, to the spiritual oversight of this church session? Do you promise to promote the peace and purity and unity of the church? Do you? Will the congregation please stand? Do you, the members of this congregation, now welcome Rebecca and Josh and Justice, Ruth Ann and Joseph. You pledge to them your fellowship, your love, your care, your support as together we seek to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? We do. Let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful that in your great love for us, you come to us. You come as the shepherd of your people. You do not leave us to wander, but you lead us in the way everlasting through Jesus Christ, who is the Good Shepherd. 
And Lord, we are thankful that you have led Rebecca and Josh with their three children to become members of this church family. We pray as they come, O Lord, you will bless them and enrich their lives spiritually and that we would be likewise spiritually enriched and blessed by their presence with us. Help us, therefore, to encourage one another mutually and to build one another up in faith, hope, and love that we together may grow into that fullness of spiritual maturity which is in Christ Jesus our Lord to the glory of your name. Amen. Rebecca and Josh and, and Joseph and Justice and Ruth Ann, we welcome you in the name of Jesus. We are thankful and glad that you're members of our church family. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.